The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, Troy B. Martin tells us about the terrifying event that began his horticultural adventures. As an accomplished garden designer, he shares the visions of fellow gardeners with his clients, writings, television show, and worldwide tours. He seeks to help you discover the inspiration found in garden cultures around the globe and domestically. Also today, Troy smashes a couple of common garden myths. Troy's love for gardening began on the Kansas Plains. At the age of 14, he began his horticultural career working at the local Blueville Nursery. His unique passion for plants and gardening led to college internships at two of the country's most esteemed public gardens, Callaway Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia, and the world-renowned Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. He has called Nashville home for over 25 years, where he grew his successful business in garden and floral design, special events, garden photography, writing, public speaking, and television. For over 20 years, he has been a part of Nashville Public Television's hit gardening show, Volunteer Gardener. Troy's passion for seeking the world's most beautiful places burns brightly. He now curates and leads small group adventures around the world through Troy B. Martin Travel. He seeks to share his many loves of gardening, food, wine, art, architecture, design, nature, photography, and history with each adventure. This is episode 81, A Child's Terrifying Horticultural Adventure with Troy B. Martin. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Troy, if you could pick any place in the world to design, build, or grow a garden, where would it be? That's an easy answer for me. Somewhere in northern Italy, maybe up around the lakes. If time and budget and all those things were not restrictions and I could just pick my favorite spot, northern Italy, Lake Maggiore, Lake Como. And I say that because it's a very unique climate there where you can grow probably the widest range of plants, both temperate and kind of subtropical, which are both really interesting groups of plants to me. Right there at the foothills of the Alps, and then you have lots of water sort of tempering the climate. One of my favorite references is at Lake Maggiore in particular. The first time I was there, I remember being struck by the fact that there were palm trees growing along the shore of the lake, underplanted with hydrangeas in full bloom. Interesting combination. I don't know that I've ever seen that. Yeah, it was very interesting, and it was very memorable. Technically, if we were to put it into USDA gardening zones, eight at least, maybe even a little warmer than that, but they get away with a lot of temperate region plants also because of the effect of the mountains and the fact that there is some winter, although it's a very mild winter. I just find it a very fascinating area, a very fascinating climate with an enormous range of beautiful plants that will grow there. Have you got a vision of that garden in your mind? Oh, I have a house picked out. (laughs) I just need to win the lottery. I have an old fixer-upper picked out, ready to go. I can see the garden falling down the hillside toward the lake. Can you describe it a little more for us? Well, it is an old Italian villa that has been apparently empty for decades. I mean, it really is just four walls. There is a hint of a garden that used to be there. There are some big old trees. There are some big old clumps of sort of shrubby palms. There's an old bougainvillea that sort of runs 
rampantly around the grounds. And I would just love to get in there and start peeling back layers and discover what was there 100 years ago or 150 years ago. There, who knows, maybe 400 years ago. Yeah, that would be my place if it was anywhere in the world. Great food, great wine, beautiful gardens, gorgeous scenery. What more can you ask for? Buy those tickets. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Would you talk about a garden that you've designed? One of the things that I have loved the most over the course of my career, it's not just about designing the garden, but building relationships with clients. I think that's the reason I can say that I have worked with some clients for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, maybe going on 25 years, and we're still involved with one another. I have a garden in Nashville that I began working on with a woman who also was a very committed gardener. She just wanted somebody who had bigger ideas and a little more vision than she had on her own, but she loves plants and she loves to experiment loves to grow new and unusual things. And that's exciting for me as a designer, because a lot of times you work with clients who sort of put your stamp on their property and then they want to just maintain it that way for its entire lifetime. This particular client understands that gardens are a dynamic thing and that they grow and that they change and that some years we're going to have bad summers, some years we're going to have bad winters, some plants are going to live, some plants are not going to make it. We may have soil problems in an area. Gardens are not static. I say to people all the time as I lecture and as we work a little bit on the television show and those kinds of things, if you are a person who does not like change or who does not handle change very well, gardening is going to be very difficult for you because gardens change from minute to minute, from hour to hour, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, and certainly over longer periods of time. Change is inevitable because we're dealing with nature. It is truly the nature of a garden to change. This particular garden has evolved and developed over 25 years. It is in no way, shape, or form a low-maintenance garden, and I'll be the first to admit that up front, and that's not what she wanted. She didn't come into this saying, I want low-maintenance or I want no-maintenance, which there is no such thing in a garden. I want a beautiful garden, and we're committed to doing what it takes to create that and to maintain it. It is work, and they certainly commit a budget to it every year. We all, as gardeners, do commit to the time and the effort and the budget that it takes to grow a garden, whether we're talking about just a little pocket space at the back of our condominium or acres. I love being able to develop gardens over periods of time with people who really understand the nature of a garden and who get as much joy from the garden as I do helping them create it. Could you pick out a small portion or tell us a small element of it that has changed over time? One of the things that has changed over time is that we have gone more toward tree shrubs and perennials and things that are more permanent. We do still have a couple of areas on the property where we do big annual color displays that we like to change out the approach up to the front door every year. One of the things that we have changed to make it a little more budget-friendly and a little more maintenance-friendly is that we have planted more permanent planting so that we're not changing such enormous areas out in color every year. We have gone to planting more perennial bulbs like daffodils, muscari, and some of the crocus, although the squirrels fight us on the crocus a lot of times. We do fewer tulips than we used to, although we do still do some because they give us such a nice display where we are in the Nashville area. We have enough winter to make them still really perform well for us, although we grow them basically as annuals and we switch them out every year. That's one of the things that we've done. Uh, We have not really eliminated bed space. We have not added a lot of bed space. We've kept the space pretty much the same, but we've tried to manage it differently, especially in the last seven to 10 years. I've worked with her for 25 years, so neither she nor I are the same age we were when we started doing this. We have a great maintenance team that comes in weekly and helps keep things looking really great. 
We've tried to be smart about how we plant and how we design and let the plants work for us. You've shifted your business model over to leading garden tours. What inspired you to do that? Well, I took my first personal trip to Europe about 25 years ago. I've been fortunate to be able to travel some in my life. First tour to Europe about 25 years ago, then my second tour in the year 2000. So that's been 22 years ago. Then some personal vacations with friends over the years. I got to a point where I was talking about age and kind of in my mid-40s, and I started in my career when I was very, very young, still a teenager, actually. I was seven, eight, nine years ahead of the curve of when people, especially in the landscaping industry, start their quote-unquote real jobs. By the time I was in my mid-40s, my body was saying, hey, you've done this long enough. That was one reason. If you're going to dig holes, dig holes for yourself and not other people, if you can do that. I just love the inspiration that I find when I travel, whether that's garden or art or architecture or food or any number of my many interests. I love bringing inspiration home and applying it to what I'm doing in my life here. I got to a point where I began thinking, it's nice to take a European vacation or Australia or New Zealand or other places that I've been every couple of years. But if I don't figure out how to do this more often, I'm not going to see all the beautiful places in the world I have on my bucket list. That was really kind of the first thought in the back of my mind was, how can I create a business? And I knew some other people who were leading garden tours, one, two a year, three a year, maybe some of them, while they also managed garden design businesses or writing careers or doing television work, all the pieces of the pie, as it were, that I also had my fingers in, started with another couple, a husband and wife out of Indianapolis who had a small garden travel business. They were my mentors and became my friends over the years. We did two or three tours together each year for about five years. As I have been inclined to do throughout most of my career, I felt like I had gotten to a point where I needed to be fully in charge and in control of my own destiny again. So I made the choice to really pull back in my design business and step almost full-time into the tour business and just see where it led me. For 2018 and 2019, it led me to some wonderful places. The business was going quite well. And then we all know what happened to all of us in the world over the past two years. And so now we're kind of gearing up again here in 2022 and relaunched the tours back in March. That's how we got to where we are today. It was just a desire to see other places in the world, be inspired by them, gardens and everything else. Gardens are certainly the the thread that ties everything together for me. What was that first trip? Very first trip that I ever did back in 2013, as far as leading a tour, was to Italy. The people I was working with at the time, they had done Italy many times over the years and were kind of known for their tours of Italy. And my very first trip 25 years ago had a little portion in it that was in Italy. And that was the first time I was kind of inspired by all that Italy is. The trips you lead now, are they public gardens? Are all of them international? What are they like? They're not all international. And I really would like to get into doing more domestic trips. Most of what I do and have done up to this point have been international tours. I would love to get into doing more domestic things and not just gardens, especially some of the domestic tours are going to really broaden out. Gardens, I think, will always be the thread that sort of runs through things been traveling almost a decade now and have built a pretty nice little client base and hope to continue expanding that. I've had several travel clients say, you know, we've traveled all over the world, uh, either through business or personal travel, but I've never been to a national park. Or I only have three states left on my bucket list. I've been to 47, but I've not been to these three. Start talking about domestic things, and, and I am going to do more of that. As far as gardens go, I try to do a nice mix of both public and private. So many of us in the world today have kind of a love-hate relationship with social media, but I will say one of the things that I really love about it is that 
I've been involved with some really wonderful organizations over the years, the Perennial Plant Association, the national organization that was formed by a group up in Columbus, Ohio, many years ago and has grown to be a really wonderful organization. What used to be Garden Riders, which is still a garden communication organization, I was fortunate enough to be involved in those groups for many years and still am as much as I can be. That connected me with so many people in our industry, both nationally and internationally, that when I began doing these garden tours, I realized that through Facebook and through Instagram, I had all of these connections in places all around the world. I would start shooting private messages to people here and there and saying, I'm going to bring a group to England next July. Can we come see your garden? Or do you have a short list of gardens for me that we might be able to see? Just started networking and really making those connections a lot through social media opened some incredible doors, especially into the world of private gardens all over Europe and the UK. A lot of the tours that I do focus quite heavily on private gardens that are not always open to the public and that certainly you can't just drive up to and knock on the door and say, hey, it looks like you have a nice backyard. Can we come in and see it? we're in London, we're going to go to Kew. We're in Edinburgh, we're going to go to the Botanical Garden. We're in Sydney, Australia. We're going to see the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney and some of the famous gardens there because you want people to be able to check those places off their bucket list and especially people who love and really know gardens. If we're south of London, we're going to Sissinghurst. We're going to see Great Dixter and some of those gardens that people have read about in books for the last 20, 30, 40 years and seen pictures of and want to be able to say, I've been there. What is one of the more memorable private gardens that you've visited? There is a wonderful private garden in Normandy called Jardin Plume. It is not entirely ornamental grasses, but it relies very heavily on ornamental grasses. I could reel off a long list, but one of the most memorable, I think, as far as the design of it, the maintenance of it, it's really just a wonderful garden. It's not a huge garden. It's a very manageable-sized garden. It's intensively planted. The hedges are almost like sculptures in and of themselves. One of the big yew hedges there is actually trimmed into these very oversized, very dramatic ocean waves. They actually peak up into points at the top, curves and points. This hedge is planted all around with very tall perennials and ornamental grasses that move back and forth in the wind, and it almost makes the hedges look like they're moving. They've been so creative in this garden. The main yew hedge that's trimmed that way actually grows right up over the corner of the barn and looks like a wave crashing onto the corner of the barn. I love to go to gardens like that. It's not something that I probably could recreate myself. Maybe I could if I had the time and the energy and the budget. I love seeing those visions of other people and then thinking, okay, how can I bring a piece of this home? Is it a plant combination? Is it an architectural hedge? Is it a piece of sculpture or a piece of art? Really inspired by a lot of times in English gardens is the way that they use twigs and sticks to create their own plant supports in a very artistic way. In American gardens, a lot of times that's something that we don't commit a level of time and artistry to. We go out to the garden center and we buy a green wire cage and we stuff that down around a peony that has fallen over. We don't use our creative minds in a lot of cases to the fullest effect when it comes to garden maintenance. So I'm always looking for little tidbits of things like that, little inspirations that I can bring home and recreate here. That might not be a yew hedge sheared like an ocean waves crashing onto the corner of a barn. What can I bring home from that garden that I could do here? Is it paving stones? Is it the way they had the grapevine trimmed around the window and we were there late in the season and the grape leaves had turned red and there were big clusters of purple grapes hanging, basically framing the kitchen window? 
Those kinds of things are the inspirations that I really focus on. What's your most memorable gardener that you've met on these tours? My most memorable gardener is Fergus Garrett at Great Dixter in England. Fergus was Christopher Lloyd's right-hand man. Christopher Lloyd was the original owner and proprietor and creator of Great Dixter. He picked it up from his parents who had begun developing a garden there in the early 20th century, but it was really him who pushed it to being a very famous, very well-known garden, not only through opening it up to the public and inviting people in to see it, but also writing about it from the 1950s all the way until he passed away in 2006. He probably was the most prolific of the British garden writers for close to 50 years was a big inspiration to me. Fergus really, when Christo passed, took the helm of Great Dixter and really has taken the garden to the next level, continues to push the boundaries, which is something that Christopher Lloyd always did and had always said, I don't want this garden to become a museum to me. I want it to continue to grow, change and develop, push the boundaries of what we do. And they have. Very, very lucky that through these different professional organizations that I have been a part of over many years that I got to know Fergus fairly well. Then when I began doing these garden tours, uh, we always receive an incredibly warm welcome at Great Dixter when we go. Even though technically now the garden is open to the public, we get treated like personal friends when we're there. And it's really a, a lovely, lovely experience. What garden are you craving to visit that you haven't yet? One of the places that I have never been is to the Loire Valley in central France. I have not experienced those big chateaux and gardens like Villandry and some of those that are right there through the Loire River Valley. Those are high on my list of places to visit. I have never been to the Orient. I've never been to Asia. would really like to explore some gardens in China and Japan at some point. Really learn about and understand better that the style uh, and the origin and the history that goes on in that part of the world when it comes to gardens and garden design. When you go on a tour, what does that look like? The tours are open to absolutely anybody who wants to go. Sometimes people think because I live in Nashville, I'm Tennessee-based, that maybe the tours are only for people I know from my region, and that is not true. I have people who travel with me from all over the United States, and I even had people from Portugal who were supposed to go on a garden tour with me in Ireland this past summer. And because of a health reason, they didn't get to. People are welcome from absolutely anywhere to join us on these tours. I do small groups, and this is another thing that allows us to take advantage of some unusual and unique opportunities on my tours, like visiting quite a few private gardens, because my average group size is probably 15, 16 people. For most of my tours, my maximum group size is 20. We're not loading people up by the 55-passenger bus load and only seeing the highlights that we can reach by London in a day. We're getting into small private coaches that we tour around the countryside in. A lot of times we stay in small towns and villages. I mentioned earlier being inspired by the things that we see and the things that we get to do. The other thing that I love about travel is learning about different cultures. And I think the way that you do that is by immersing yourself in that culture, by staying in the small town. If I'm doing Tuscany, we're going to stay in the hill towns. We're not just going to do Tuscany from Rome or Florence. We're going to go out and stay, learn, and really get to know the people and the culture. I find, especially in the gardening world, people are so warm and welcoming, and they want to show you what they've accomplished and what they've created. By doing small groups, it really allows me to offer some unique opportunities that people don't get to do with some of the companies who do big tour groups. And it's just a matter of size of group. 
certainly I can say, if you called me up and said, can I bring 55 passenger bus load of people to your garden, or can I bring two 55 passenger bus loads of people to your garden? I'm going to have to think about that. And the answer is probably no. But if you call me and say, can I bring 10 people or 15 people or 18 people, that's manageable. It's manageable for them. It's enjoyable for them because it allows me as the gardener in this case to interact with the people who are coming to my garden. Whereas with a big group as a gardener, I'm worried about what's getting stepped on, what's getting picked. It's a management thing, but it's also about for them getting to know me and me getting to know them, being able to really interact with a group. All of us as gardeners, certainly my experience around the world has been that gardeners want to interact. That's what has opened so many doors. I really like to focus on these small groups because we can offer experiences and not just tours. You're touring international gardens, but you've had an opportunity over the years to tour a lot of gardens within your state with the television show that you do. Could you tell us about that? The television show is called Volunteer Gardener because Tennessee is the volunteer state. We are produced out of Nashville by Nashville Public Television. We air in every public television market in the state, from the west end of the state to the east end of the state. Because Tennessee is a long, skinny state and our cities are situated where they are, we spill over a lot. The Nashville market spills over into Kentucky. The Memphis and Martin, Tennessee markets spill over into the boot heel of Missouri and Arkansas and a little bit of Mississippi. Chattanooga, of course, spills over into northern Alabama and north Georgia. And then some of the stations in the eastern part of the state spill over into some of North Carolina. Technically are a statewide show, but just because television waves don't stop at the state line, we actually become kind of regional. We've been on the air for a little over 30 years. I have been involved with the show for about 25, 26 seasons started six years maybe after I moved to Nashville, have kind of grown through my career as a garden designer also on television. We're a magazine-style show. We're 30 minutes. We air weekly. We develop 26 new shows each season. We run new shows from basically March through October. Then we run the season again through the winter months, more or less from beginning to end. I host a variety of different types of segments. I probably have the most diverse background of anybody who helps co-host the show. I tend to kind of catch a variety of different things. I may be in a garden center one week talking about fertilizer and leading a garden tour in somebody's garden the next week or doing a pruning demonstration. We have several other co-hosts on the show who have specialty areas. One gentleman has owned an organic farm since the 1970s and focuses on that aspect of gardening, food production in an organic way. He's a very interesting and incredibly knowledgeable person and one of our most loved hosts. We have several ladies who are on the show who are extremely knowledgeable gardeners themselves who host various aspects. There's a lady who owns a kind of a a garden shop down in Franklin, Tennessee, who focuses a lot on herbs and cut flowers and dried flowers and houseplants and arts and crafts that you can do in the garden. So it's a broad range of people and we have a really good time doing it. We try to offer as wide a range of topics on gardening as we can, from how to grow your tomatoes to how to create a Valentine's Day floral arrangement. We kind of cover it all. You've been in a lot of Tennessee gardens. What would be one of the more memorable private gardens that you've been in? There are a couple that come to mind. One was a beautiful garden in West Tennessee that focuses heavily on Japanese maples. That was a real surprise to viewers because you would probably not necessarily associate the climate with West Tennessee, which is really hot and often summer dry, with being a great climate for Japanese maple. This garden was irrigated, so that helped. These people had really just put a lot of time, effort, and a significant budget into creating a space 
that would allow them to grow and explore one of their favorite groups of plants. It was a magnificent garden. The colors, textures, and shape with almost nothing in bloom. It was a very green garden. They did have flowers in some places. It really was focused on the architecture and the beauty of their collection of Japanese maples, and it was just stunning. That's one that comes to mind. Several years ago, we did a garden in Knoxville that had some really beautiful water features. They were all created by the homeowners. I love homeowner-built gardens. I can go to any garden anywhere that the homeowner has paid a landscape company $100,000 to build, and they're beautiful, and we do some of those gardens on the show. But the ones that I really love are the ones that have been largely homeowner-created. And sure, they may hire some help to come and do the really heavy lifting, in many cases, placement of boulders and things you need equipment for that really have been designed and inspired and built by homeowners. Those are the places that I really find the most inspiration and connections with people in overseas gardens. It's no different for me when I'm touring a garden here at home. The connections that form between plant people, we always have a topic of conversation. As you well know, any of us who garden can talk about gardening ad nauseum. Tell us about one of the Tennessee gardeners. As somebody who immediately comes to mind as a Tennessee gardener, both at his private garden at home, but also at the garden that he manages and has helped to create in Jackson, Tennessee, is Jason Reeves. Jason is an incredible plants person, for one thing. He is one of the most creative minds that I know. He and I have been friends for many, many years, so I I talk about him as a colleague, but also as a friend. He just constantly inspires me and everybody else he comes in contact with. Jason manages and is the head of the garden at the West Tennessee Research Station in Jackson, Tennessee, where our friend Carol Reese also works. And I know Carol's been a part of your podcast. Yes. Carol and Jason and I and and a lot of other people from that area go back quite a ways, uh, again, through these professional connections in our industry, but then also becoming fast friends along the way. Jason, to me, is one of the most inspirational gardeners that I know. And again, I'm speaking both from his home personal garden, uh, who he invites people to visit all the time, to the work that he does in a more public space in Jackson, and has transformed that place from a parking lot full of holly bushes to what I would consider one of the finest gardens in the Southeast, really. He's done it in a way that allows them to still continue their research and be able to get plants from all of the growers around the country and trial those plants for performance in the southeastern United States, particularly in West Tennessee. When I was in college and we talked about the plant trials, it was 30 beds of annuals that were 50 feet long and four feet wide, and they were all laid out in square blocks. You had 50 different varieties of salvia all growing together, and you walked down the line and went, well, that one looks really good, and that one looks really bad, and this one is mediocre, and this one gets an A+, and that one gets a C-. And trial gardens have evolved, as other gardens have. People like Jason have been kind of at the forefront of that movement. Now, when you go to a lot of these, in particular, university trial gardens, We're not just seeing blocks of plants laid out anymore. We're seeing these spaces gardened as you might garden them at home, being places to find inspiration for not only new varieties of plants that are performing well in the climate that you garden in, but also inspiration for design and plant combinations and color combinations. And the garden at the University of Georgia would be another example. Fine, fine trial garden. Alan Armitage was in charge of that for many, many, many years. And Dr. Durr, who also have become friends and professional colleagues over the years. Another lady in Knoxville by the name of Faye Beck. Once in a great while, Faye opens her garden up 
those of us who become friends with Faye and get to visit the garden on occasion, she built a new house in a new subdivision, and it's been 15 years maybe. She carved out a spectacular garden in a new development, in a just-built house on soil that had been run over with bulldozers and bobcats, compacted and all of this. She built a really special, special garden over in the Knoxville area. What are some other public gardens in Tennessee that we ought to see? Told us about Jason's garden. That one is in Jackson, Tennessee. There is also a UT garden in Crossville up on the plateau. And then, of course, on the UT campus, there's a gorgeous garden there that is largely part of the student program at the University of Tennessee, where the students are able to get hands-on experience. In Nashville, we have Cheekwood, which is our small botanical garden there, which was a private home in the early part of the 20th century, built between 1929 and 1932 an old estate home that has been turned into a public garden and an art museum. We have a couple of public gardens down in Memphis that are accessible to everyone. And I'm sure there are others that I am not thinking of that I'll get in trouble for. (laughs) Those are the ones that come to mind right off the top of my head. Just over the state line, not very far, an easy drive from a lot of places in Tennessee is the Huntsville Botanic Garden, which is a wonderful small garden and an easy day trip, certainly from the Nashville area and from quite a few other places around Tennessee. And it's well worth your passing through that way near to Huntsville to take a quick stop in the Huntsville Botanic Garden and see what they have going on there. What are the most undiscovered gardens in the United States that you would recommend seeing? Gardens that I think people really should see that are incredibly inspiring to me. There's a garden called Chanticleer. Every gardener who wants to be inspired should go to Chanticleer. You should not miss it. If you are anywhere near Philadelphia, make sure that you carve out enough time. The most inspiring garden, I think, in the United States. It's not a huge garden. You can easily do the whole garden in a couple of hours. Now, if you're a real plants person and you're going to start looking at every plant and every combination that they've done, you need to plant a lot longer than a couple of hours. The staff there is brilliant. They are given free reign, more or less, to do as they see fit with their areas. They are allowed to push the envelope with design and plant combinations. They are one of the fortunate public gardens who has the budget to be able to do those kinds of things. That doesn't always happen in public gardens. I don't know that I would call Chanticleer undiscovered necessarily because it is quite popular. It's extremely popular in the region, and it's very well known amongst us who are in the know, if you will. To the broader, more general public, it may be unknown, and it should be incredibly well known. Another garden that comes to mind that is very, very inspirational is the J.C. Ralston Arboretum at North Carolina State University. Both as a plant collection and as a well-designed garden, it's one of the better ones. The J.C. Ralston Arboretum now is also connected with the Juniper Level Botanic Garden, which is just outside of Raleigh and part of a well-known mail-order nursery called Plant Delights Nursery. Eventually, those two organizations will be completely married together, and Juniper Level and Plant Delights will be kind of a satellite of the J.C. Ralston Arboretum. If you are a plant person, I believe that At last count, I'm not going to quote this exactly right, but I think Tony Avent at Plant Delights slash Juniper Level has something like 28,000 taxa in the garden. It is an unbelievable collection of plants. Plant Delights and Juniper Level have open days throughout the year. They are not always open to the public kind of garden. The, The Ralston Arboretum absolutely is. It's part of the campus. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? I wish they would pay as much attention and invest as much money in their soil as they do in their landscape plans and the plants that they eventually put in. That goes for everyone from new builds with crummy backfill soil that's just been run over by bulldozers. Those people really need to pay attention. To people who live in older communities with very well-established neighborhoods and reasonably good soil, 
we all kind of take our soil for granted that it's just there to hold the plants in place, that the roots are going to grow down into it no matter what. Our plants are going to be okay. Better care we take of our soil, the better we manage our soil, better our gardens are going to grow. And that doesn't mean just throwing handfuls of fertilizer onto things all the time. That helps the plant, maybe. If your plant is growing poor soil or soil that's not to its liking, maybe that handful of fertilizer helps the plant. But it doesn't necessarily help the soil from a structural standpoint, from a soil web standpoint, from all of the little microbes and things that exist there. Think until we understand that gardening is not just digging a hole and dropping a plant in and watering it one or two times and walking away. Gardening and garden, I tend to look at the verb usage of those words. To me, to have a garden is an activity. It's not something that I just look at from my windows. Certainly, we can create those places. And as a landscape designer, as a garden designer, I have created plenty of gardens over the years that people just look at through their windows and they pay somebody else to do the maintenance part of it. Those are the fortunate clients who get to have a thing of beauty that they can just enjoy. Some of those clients probably only enjoy them from the windows. If I had to say to people, What do I wish people would do differently? Number one, I wish they would pay as much attention to their soil in the beginning. When I moved to the place where I currently live and began gardening there, the bed spaces had been defined and I didn't really change them much. The soil was not in great condition. A lot of those beds had not been gardened at all in about two or three years. And so they were full of perennial weeds like Bermuda grass and Johnson grass and white clover. I spent the first two years after I moved into this house with 700 plants in containers that I had moved from the previous garden. Never planted a plant. I maintained all of them in pots for two years while I worked on the soil. I know not everybody can do that. I was able to, and it paid me back tenfold. After the first nine to 12 months, I did begin planting a few trees and shrubs and more permanent things far as perennials and those kinds of plants went, I didn't do any planting until A, I had the weed problem under control because I knew I would never get control of it if I started planting into these weedy beds. I would just never be able to manage it. Secondly, I wanted to use the compost pile that was there where people had just dumped leaves previously and I had this mound of beautiful black gold waiting for me to use and incorporate that and I knew there wasn't a way to do that successfully until those really pernicious weeds like the Bermuda grass and things I had been able to manage. I would say soil management first and then really use the word garden as a verb. Get out in it. It's an activity. It can be just a garden. It can be a noun. It can be just something to look at. But I think even for people who might not want to be out planting the tulip bulbs themselves or deadheading the daylilies themselves, the more they get out in it and the more they connect with the garden and nature and the things around them, I just think it's a way to make your life better. It's a way to bring some pleasure and some enjoyment to a world that is fast-paced and these days a constant barrage of headlines. I usually have my phone in my back pocket when I'm in the garden. Mom texts and I'll stop and respond or a friend texts and I'll stop and respond. Try to kind of stay off social media when I'm in the garden unless there's something I really want to show and then I might do a short video or take a few pictures and post them to Facebook or Instagram. When I'm in the garden, I try to let the garden be my time. That's just to get in my own head and sort things out that are going on in life or to get up and close and personal with the bees and the butterflies and the praying mantises and the flowers. I love being down on my hands and knees pulling weeds. I didn't used to. Pulling weeds 20 years ago was my most hated job. Now it's my most loved job because that's when I feel like I'm really connected. What garden myth would you like to smash? That it's easy. (laughs) That they're just plants and all you have to do is dig a hole and put them in the ground and walk away. Gardening is not easy, but it is enjoyable. If you can learn to find the joy in it, the work becomes easier because of the joy.
there's kind of a mindset about our industry that what we do is just fun every day, that what we do is easy every day, and you're just gardening. How hard could it possibly be? Sometimes I find that there's almost a little disrespect in that term because it's always preceded by the word just or only. You're just a gardener. You're just gardening. Come out and work with me in my garden or in one of my client's gardens for a day in August and see how hard we work and how committed we are. As far as hot topics, and boy, I'll open a can of worms on this one, but I'm going to say it. I think one of the myths that I would like to dispel is that native plants are the answer to everything. That's just my personal opinion. And I'm not saying that I don't like native plants. The opposite is true. My garden is full of plants that I love, whether they are native or non-native. And I think our job, when you get into that argument about are native plants better than non-native plants, invasive exotic has become such a hot button issue these days amongst gardeners. My position is that our job as gardeners is to be good stewards. So if we find something in our gardens that looks like it may become a problem, it is our job as good stewards to manage that plant appropriately, whether it is deadheading it so it doesn't go to seed or eliminating it if it's a plant that has proven to be a real problem. In a world today that is so divided by everything, even in the gardening world, we get these groups of people who say, you should only be growing native plants. And then you have people on the other side of the equation who are saying, well, no, we're just part of the distribution and we should grow plants from everywhere in the world, do as much as we can to preserve nature in any way that we can. I just think there's a happy medium to every issue. That's where I try to be is somewhere in the middle of that road. If you came to my garden, you would see everything from native plants that are so local that I collected them a mile down the road to plants that are native to China. But where do I draw the line on those non-native species? And that is when they start to show in my garden that they could become out of control. I'm very fortunate in the current space that I live in. While I garden on about half to two-thirds of an acre, I back immediately up to 185 acres of really pristine land, and we are very determined to keep it that way. I don't want to see beautyberry coming up down by the pond, unless it's our native American beautyberry. I don't want to see buddleia, butterfly bush, coming up down on the creek bank. I think our job in the gardening world is just grow what you love, but be a good steward while you're doing it. What's your earliest garden memory? I can tell you exactly. My mom and my grandmother were both hairdressers. And when I was very young, I had a babysitter who lived just about two blocks from my grandmother's house. My grandmother's beauty shop, as we called it, was on the back of her house, and my mom worked part-time with her. When I was about three years old, I stayed with a woman who lived just up the street. In their front yard were two big silver maples, which a lot of people kind of consider trash trees. But as a three-year-old sitting out there in the late spring or early summer, those big seeds would come whirling down like helicopters out of the trees. I thought they were the most fascinating things in the world. I don't know how I knew this, that those would grow. I don't ever remember being told. I just remember having some innate sense that if I poked those seeds into the ground, that they would grow. And I did in my babysitter's flower bed at the front of her house. Six weeks later, she had a huge crop of silver maples coming up in her flower bed and offered them to my parents and grandparents. They dug them, planted them at my grandparents' house down the street and in my parents' yard in the little town where I was raised. 48 years later, two of those trees are still standing in my parents' yard. Probably are some others around those two communities that we gave away to friends and other family members that go back to me being Johnny Mapleseed at three years old, poking those little helicopters, as we called them, down into the ground and growing my first crop of silver maples. Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural gardening landscape profession? It was something that I was really good at. 
Growing up in a rural community in Kansas, we had really active 4-H clubs, and the county fair was a huge deal every year. Being a very shy child and not having the confidence really to even speak to anybody, let alone stand up in front of people and speak, you would never know today that I had a shy bone in my body. Gardening was something that I could connect with like-minded people about, the same way that I do today. I started in 4-H as soon as I was old enough to join. We had two big events during the year at the county level, and one was the county fair, which was at the end of July, but we also had what they called the spring show. I would go out in my garden patch and cut flowers or take vegetables or whatever and exhibit at the fair and at the spring show. Probably about nine years old when my mom pushed me crying into a horticulture judging contest one year. I was not more than nine to maybe 10 at the very most was terrified to go into this room by myself with other people who I didn't really know very well. But lo and behold, I did it. When the results were all tallied, I had won the junior division. I had identified more plants. I had done better on the written test. I had done better in the judging portion of it. A light bulb kind of went off in my brain and said, you can do this. That really was the beginning of knowing that I could do gardening I didn't know yet at 10 years old that I could do it as a career. That gave me the confidence to then continue pursuing 4-H. And then when I got into high school, FFA, which time was Future Farmers of America, they don't go by that moniker anymore. They're the national FFA organization now. It was a real opportunity for me to learn, certainly, but mostly to begin to come out of my very shy, very introverted shell and connect with people about things that I felt confident about. Horticulture gardening was a truly a life-changing thing for me because it allowed me to know that there was something that I could be good at. Through 4-H, the county horticulture judging coach was the owner of a small nursery and garden center that still exists today, uh, owned by their son now. At the age of 14, after filling out a lot of paperwork and going through a lot of red tape because I was legally not old enough to work yet, they hired me at the garden center. I was a freshman in high school. I began working professionally in the horticulture industry at 14 years old. I would ride the bus, get out of school at 3.30, be to the nursery by 4, and work from 4 to 6 when they closed. The nursery was just about five miles from my grandmother's house. Either one of the owners or one of the girls who worked there would drop me off at my grandma's, and then my dad would pick me up on his way home from work as he was going by his mom's house. It was a network of people and this experience of kindness and generosity in the horticulture world that propelled me into what I have turned into a lifelong career. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Pampering struggling plants. It took me a very long time to learn that some plants just aren't going to be happy, whether it's your summer temperatures, your winter temperature fluctuations. In Tennessee, where I am, we're zone seven. It might be 73 one day in January, and 48 hours later, it might be 13. That kills more plants than just about anything. I think one of the most valuable lessons I learned is not every plant is going to be happy, and that's okay. Once you've dealt with it for two or three seasons, and it has shown you that it's not going to be happy, there's an old quote by the poet Maya Angelou about people that says, when people show you who they are, believe them. And I think the same thing about plants. When a plant shows you who it is or what it wants, believe it. If it is not happy where it's growing, I might move it to a different home. Maybe I had it in too much sun. I'll put it in a little more shade. Maybe I had it in a pocket of clay and I either did or I didn't realize that it was in that pocket of clay, but it's not happy there. Maybe I move it somewhere else, but I'm not moving it 17 times. I'm going to move it twice, maybe a third time. Sometimes the plants just outsmart me. I can't force something to grow where it isn't going to be happy. Once I learned that, it made my gardening life so much easier. And I will go to people's homes and still do a fair bit of consulting. 
I'll walk past something and person will say, I have had that for seven years. It has just done nothing but struggle. Look at them and say, then dig it up and throw it out. Well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You can dig it up and throw it away. There's a great Irish gardener by the name of Helen Dillon. Helen has written some fabulous books over the years, was a gardening television personality in Ireland. She's still with us, but not gardening anymore, unfortunately. Helen did the Nashville Lawn and Garden Show one year, about 15 years ago, and the title of her talk was Dig It Up and Throw It Away. It was giving permission to people to not struggle. I think when gardening is a struggle, it's not fun. I don't want to just sound like I'm being flip and saying, I know you spent money on that plant and you want to nurture it and you want to baby it, and you should, but there comes a point where it's time to just say, okay, I've done everything I can. This isn't a success. What can I do that will be successful? By being successful, that brings you joy, that brings you happiness. You continue on down that gardening path and you do other things that are successful. So my biggest piece of advice in that respect to people is don't struggle, and it's okay to cut ties with something. It's not an animal. It's not a human. And if it has spent all of its years struggling and you planted it as a three-gallon shrub and now it's one twig that's left and you're still out there pampering it, put it in the compost pile. Let it feed something else that will be happy. What plant are you craving right now? My Kansas roots come out here. Some people say peony. Some people say peony. It just depends on where you're from. But I'm kind of in a phase right now. And we all go through gardening and plant collecting phases. I also hybridize and breed different varieties of daylilies, new varieties of daylilies. But right now I'm really into peonies or peonies, especially the woody shrub form, what we in the industry call tree peonies, although they're not truly trees, they're more shrubs. Those and then some of the hybrids that are in between our old-fashioned peonies and the tree peonies, what we call the Ito hybrid peonies, I've really gotten into those. I have horticultural ADD, so I'm never really completely focused on just one thing, but that seems to be a path that I have been going down recently. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have... Weeds. (laughs) (laughs) In my garden, I have weeds. We all battle them. You mentioned gardening myths a little while ago, and I think sometimes to the average homeowner, to the everyday gardener, those of us who are in the industry sometimes become sort of mythical creatures. I know people think because they say it to me, because I've written some books, because I've been on television for 25 plus years, because I've been on the tour circuit, because I've spent my life as a professional in this industry. Troy Martins and the Carol Reeses and the Jared Barneses and the Jason Reeveses of the world become sort of mythical creatures in our community, if you will. And people think that we don't struggle or that the same problem with voles or moles doesn't affect us that affects them or that our plants don't get powdery mildew. We fight all of those same battles. We're all in this together. And one of my favorite plants that I'd had for a number of years was attacked by voles this last time I was gone traveling for about five weeks. And I came home and it didn't look very well. And I walked over and I just lifted it straight up out of the ground. The voles had gotten hungry and eaten every root off of it. Those things happen to all of us. So in my garden, I have weeds just like everybody else does. I also happen to have a pretty cool collection of plants that I've spent a lifetime collecting. My garden is a collector's garden. I tell my clients all the time, do as I say, not as I do. I garden in masses of one. To me, it is a game, and he who ends up with the most plants wins. What have you recently learned about horticultural gardening? I think every day I learn that I have so much more to learn. No matter how many books I read, no matter how many gardens I visit, no matter how many hours I spend communing with nature and my garden, I hope I never stop learning until they put me in the ground to feed something else. I hope that I am learning until I draw my last breath. 
I'm never finished learning. And even though through the travel business and other things, my world has expanded into other loves, I say to people all the time, I'm not a one-trick pony. I don't just love gardening. I love art. I love architecture. And I like nice wine. And I love great food. And we do all of those things because I enjoy them. Gardening really is the thing that I come back to. I learn every single day that I have so much more to learn, not just about gardening, but about the natural world, because I don't think you can just be a gardener and not be connected to everything around you. Troy, tell us how people may connect with you. People can connect with me through my website, which is troybmarden.com. I am also on Facebook at Troy B. Martin Travel, and I am on Instagram, which is at Troy B. Martin. This has been Episode 81, A Child's Terrifying Horticultural Adventure with Troy B. Martin. Thank you, Troy. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.